Welcome to Setter Talk. I am your host, Kyle Warren. Today's guest really needs no introduction in the Upland podcast community. We have Nick Larson with us today. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kyle. It's a pleasure to join you on this episode of Setter Talk. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm really excited to have you. Um, uh, before I go into uh, a bunch of questions that I have for you, why don't you give the listeners just a little bit of background on yourself, and uh, you can uh, you can talk about yourself the way you would like to everybody to hear you. <laughs> yeah, sure, man. So uh, I do host the Project Upland podcast, uh, as Kyle mentioned, and I've been doing that since t late 2017. So I technically would say that we're in year number three of the Project Upland podcast, which I, I say that because I think if people know me, my name, my voice, that's probably the most likely uh, likely place that they would recognize that from. So, um, but beyond that, and I think more so the reason that I'm on the episode of the show with you today, Kyle, is that I am the owner of an English setter. He will be six years old in June. His name is Hartley. He is my first bird dog. So the last six years have been quite an adventure from, you know, puppy to six-year-old bird dog, the whole thing every year every season every day spent with him as much as I possibly can and really a lot in my life has changed since I took Hartley home six roughly six years ago and a lot of that has to do with bringing a bird dog into my life <laughs> yeah yeah cool very cool so yeah uh I wanted to have you on the show for that exact reason you know you're you're a first time setter owner. I didn't know this was your first bird dog, so um that's a uh, yep. extra extra cool in conversation um I feel that uh in in the best of senses, you would be um in the in the world of uh cyberspace and sh social media today in the upland community. The poster boy for uh, learn as much as you can, find as many resources as you can, uh, as much professional help as you can. And I, I really think in, uh, between your Project Upland podcast um, and just your journey with this dog from everything that I know of you, from speaking to you in the past and following you, that um, uh, you are uh, the person uh, that uh, it would be it's so great for first time setter owners bird dog people to hear in the in the process you know your journey uh with this dog so um in terms of you know, all the knowledge that you've uh uh acquired over over the time of having hartley um and all the people and dogs that you've uh, networked with um why don't you just tell us a, a little bit about um you know where you started um obviously with a clean slate you know and and, and where you are now in terms of uh, your, your bringing up of Hartley, your training process. And, you know, uh, after you explain all that, uh, what you maybe, uh, plan to do uh, a little bit differently, if anything, uh, with your next dog. Cool. Yeah. Well, definitely I am, I appreciate you sort of highlighting my thirst for knowledge because that is, that's something that's not unusual or it's not uncommon in, in really everything that I have done. I'm always like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an avid learner. I love to learn new things and whatever I 
whatever kind of strikes my fancy, which changes often, you know, I, I have many different interests and a variety of interests, but if something does interest me, I, it's, I usually dive pretty deep on it and I'm, you know, kind of like insatiable in my, my quest to learn and, and talk to people and, and really, really just dive deeper on it because, and, and, you know, with that comes, you know, I, in a lot of areas, I'm just a complete novice and true project upland form. I was a total bird dog novice when I got, when I decided to get my first bird dog, obviously I wasn't host, hosting the project Dublin podcast back then. I was listening to podcasts, although I don't think at that time, that would have been 2014. I don't think there were any, there, there were maybe one or two, but not really any well-known upland podcasts in, in, uh, at that time. But but that said, you know, I'm six years down the road now, and obviously the Project Dublin podcast is part of my life right now, but that's really just a reflection of my thirst for knowledge and me wanting to learn. One of the reasons, one of the motivations for me doing that is because I just like talking to people. And obviously I've, I've had, or maybe not obviously people, I've been upland bird hunting and grouse hunting for over 20 years since I was, you know, a a little kid, nine, 10, 10 years old, whenever I got my gun safety and I could grouse hunt. And I, I always had a fascination for grouse hunting. That's pretty much what I did growing up in Northern Minnesota. Um, but now today, the podcast gives me an opportunity to, again, connect with people and learn from them as I have much to learn about bird dogs, about bird hunting, about all that stuff. So the journey with the first bird dog has been a ton of fun. It's been very interesting starting from literally ground zero. Other than I knew that I wanted a bird dog when I grew up someday. That was about the extent of my knowledge, you know, seeing them on TV, watching ESPN outdoors or whatever, whatever hunting shows I used to watch when I was younger. I, you know, I knew bird dogs existed and I knew that I wanted one, but that's about all I, all I knew about them really. So 2014 brought home the setter. And again, as you might imagine, Kyle, I, in the time that I put my deposit down on my first setter and the time that I took them home, I read probably, I don't know, probably 10 different dog training books, which <laughs> had, had its like pros and cons, right? Because I, I certainly, I, I gained a, a breadth of knowledge from lots of different perspectives, but then the danger had no idea what to do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You almost, you know, like I, it would not be unusual for me to have analysis paralysis in any area of my <laughs> life. But, but one of the things that I think is very important that, and I, you know, people like to say this is, you know, pick a, pick a, pick a dog training system and stick to it. You know, don't try to, don't try to pull a piece from, everything that you read and put it together and make your own system because you're going to shoot yourself in the foot. And that's easier said than done is, is ultimately what I'm getting at. Cause I want to read these books. I want to learn different perspectives, but then you have, you got a lot of information in your head. So um, trying to, trying to keep things straight and, and utilize one sort of system was, I guess, maybe a challenge for me at times. Now with that said, I, I, I consider myself very fortunate to live where I do and that I have very good access to wild birds. And that's mainly rough grouse and woodcock. And more recently, I've actually discovered some areas that I can get into sharptail grouse, uh, which has become ever uh, more interesting to me, given my uh, the past two falls, I've taken trips out west to go sharptail grouse hunting. So, of course, I'm more interested in those birds. But 
Mm-hmm. The extent of my training, and we can get into more specifics about this. I don't want to ramble on too much, but the extent of my training has pretty much been get hardly on wild birds as much as humanly possible in the spring and fall, you know, whenever I can. And I have mixed in, I would say sprinkled in um, some work with pigeons and, uh, you know, some like real training bird scenarios uh, on top of a ton of wild birds, but the ratio is, is very, very heavy on wild birds, um, compared to pigeons. And then general obedience stuff, you know, I'm pretty well versed on what that is now. Uh, and I've, I've obviously implemented much of that with my own dog. And then he's had a ton of wild bird work in both the spring and fall. And, and then we've sprinkled in some pigeon work, working on steadiness as, as, uh, as the years have gone by, but that's been pretty much the extent of my approach. It's very much that, you know, non-professional trainer approach where I give my dog as much possible opportunity as he can to hunt wild birds. And I just try to try to mold, mold him during that process to the best I can. Cool. So, um, in terms of, uh, you know, one of the things, uh, uh, that we see, uh, in the bird dog community, not just the setter community, but everybody uh, uh, desires or requires a, a different uh, degree of training within their dog in terms of what we often, you know, label as started to finished. And um, uh, what's your, given the fact that, um, you know, you, you've kind of expanded out of just being a forest hunter, you know, into some more open country hunting and whatnot. Um, where where do you have Hartley at, and uh, um, where do you where do you want him at in terms of the steadiness process? I guess. Cool. Yeah, that's a good question, and that is something that, again, as I've gone through this process, I've learned much about the steadiness process and what it takes to what it takes to get a dog there and keep a dog there. I guess I'm I'm much more familiar with that today than I was five six years ago. Hartley is steady to wing shot and fall on training birds but as soon as hunting season starts he pretty much breaks at the flush and Mm -hmm. that is that is something that the last couple of seasons i have i've i've wanted to alter that And, and really it was last year where i was kind of Again, leading into the season, I was adamant that I was going to, I wanted Hartley to stay steady after the flush. And for me personally, if he broke, if I had a dog that broke at the shot, I think I would be okay with that. Even though mm-hmm. I know, you know, every once in a while in the rough grouse woods, you're going to have, you have a, you'll have one bird go. And if the dog, a lot of times it's a single bird, but there are, there are times when it's more than one bird. And, and I've had those times happen to me when, the first bird goes, then Hartley breaks, and then there's just too much chaos for a remaining bird to handle, and then that flushes, and you can see yeah. the advantages of having a steady dog. So I've seen that happen, and I would like a little bit more steadiness in a hunting scenario, and, I, and it's really up to me because come springtime, this has happened in the last few years, come springtime, I will go out and we will train you. As soon as the snow melts, I'll get back out in the rough grouse woods, and like the way that it happened last year was the very first day we went out spring training, the first grouse hardly, I think we had a good day. He pointed, he pointed between like five and seven grouse. We had good 
um, good contacts for just a, you know, 90 minute run through the woods. Mm -hmm. And the first bird, he goes on point. I walk in, it flush. And I'm pretty sure I had a flank collar on him that day. So, uh, collar around the belly for anybody that doesn't know that you can use very light stimulation mm -hmm. and that tends to really make a dog want to stop and that works very well for my dog hardly uh, first bird goes i use the collar he stops you know in in maybe a bound or two or a couple of steps and then after that that brief little reminder hartley is a smart dog he knows it's spring he knows it's training season he knows i don't have a gun in my hand the rest of the day, he pointed, like I said, another handful of grouse and never took a step, you know. So he's, I have him to that point where he knows what it's like and what it means to stand through the flush. But mm -hmm. come each, each fall, the past few seasons, the gun is, the gun is out. And, and in North Dakota this year, I'm, I'm trying to think back. I don't recall that was my first trip of the year. He might, he may have demonstrated some you know, tendency to be steady through the flush and, and maybe even the shot. But again, you have this like regression and I've heard other trainers that are much more experienced and knowledgeable than I talk about it. So I know it's not just Hartley, but you have this regression and sort of like the things get a little bit lax and a little bit loose during hunting season. And I am very much the kind of person that I'm out there to hunt and to enjoy myself. And I appreciate, I, I've really learned and come to appreciate good dog work but at the end of the day if i feel like hartley and i are working as a team and he's finding birds and pointing it's just you know i just tend to let a lot of things slide but where that comes to bite me i think is towards the end of the season i think Hart hartley then he gets this anticipation where he's just waiting for that bird to go because he knows he's going to chase it and i and i just think there's a little bit of anticipation build up towards the end of the season that just it at least there's some inconsistencies in how he handles birds from what I've seen. So I kind of like, I put the onus on myself. Like I need to, I need to develop a, a set of standards that I hold partly to, but really myself that I hold myself accountable to that. So we can basically have a better relationship in the woods. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, with steadiness, it's one of those teach their own things. And, uh, uh, I think, um, uh, coming from a guy that that uh, <laughs> has has an arsenal of dogs, um, yep. and uh, you know the only dogs I don't get paid to train are my own. So uh, I, I've I've never taken uh, any of uh, my setters, uh, you know, to the quote unquote finish level. Um, uh, my guys, my guys all break on the on the flush, and as you had mentioned, you know, there uh, that has its downsides in regards to, uh, you know, when you, when you get into a, a family of birds, a covey, a, a grouse in the woods. And, uh, though I do find that, uh, you know, your, your seasoned dogs, um, if, if they got a, a, a nose full of birds and there's, I've had lots of times where, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll still hold there. Um, if, if they got some birds locked down pretty good and they're getting a, a, a good scent path straight to them there. But, uh, yeah, yep. I would say, um, uh, you know, fictitious percentages here, but, um, you know, that, that might, uh, especially early season, um, that might, that might adversely affect my shooting opportunities, uh, by like five or 10%, you know, uh, of contacts. And, um, I, I just, you know, I take that percentage on the, on the chin, uh, because they're 
steady until those birds go. Um, but, uh, yeah. and you know, we have the whole safety realm of things too, um, that, that, uh, you know, uh, further steadiness, uh, uh, to at least shot, uh, certainly, uh, can create. Um, so for myself, I, I just have these, these rules in my head, you know, I, I want to at least be up to the dog, you know, to shoot, uh, when there's a flush, you know, you know, certain elevations, no stray shots, you know, different things like that, um, for, for safety, uh, for me and my dogs and whoever's out with us. And, um, but when we, uh, when we look at steadiness, um, you know, everybody has different degrees of that, um, that they, that they're comfortable with, uh, you know, something that you had mentioned, that I find um, always interesting because uh, I, w- I would say uh, I'm probably in the minority in this respect, but I also, in terms of obedience, I, I feel like I demand less of my dogs on the hunt and, and I'm a hunter. I don't, I don't, you know, do trials or, or, or hunt tests uh, to, you know, so I'm not necessarily training for a particular standard um, in that respect, but, you know, I'm I'm one that always feels the, the dog uh, is always learning. It never stops learning, whether it's training season or hunting season. And because my communication with my dogs in the woods is is minimal, you know, it's that whole for me that stop at first scent. You know, if the scent is fading, kind of thing. When I when I get up to the dog, you know, they learn after several weeks of a lot of contacts where you and I hunt that uh, that intelligent disobedience, you know, uh, takes over, and I allow that. Um, but uh, I always make sure they stop at that, you know, first uh, scent. And also when, um, you know, if, if a bird goes up in the vicinity, even if I don't think the dog uh, uh, caused it in a bump, you know, I'll give them a woe and I'll study them up and I'll walk them around a little bit and then I'll send them on their way. And I'll, and pretty much that's, that's all I demand of them besides, you know, a recall and, and my guys stay in touch and are connected a lot. But um uh, yeah, a lot of people, you know, like to hunt and a lot of people, I think, um, at minimum, at least with their first year dogs will kind of do what I, what I just said. Um, but that for me personally, that's, that's kind of the extent that I take it in terms of, uh, um, you know, what, what works for me and is functional, but yeah, steadiness obviously is always a big topic and an ongoing thing that occurs for people that demand it to a higher standard year round. Cause it is discipline beyond once you you know, we're taking a, a a pointing dog. You know, it's it's somewhat counter evolutionary. You know, if they're out there by themselves as a predator, they'll hold it forever. <laughs> um, you yeah. know, for the sake of survival. So the the obedience element, uh, and as you said, maintaining that level of discipline um, requires a lot of time and uh, a lot of uh, commitment um, on the handler and hunter's end of things. So that's uh, interesting. Um, you know, you had said. Um, I think, in if I recall correctly, uh, when you were speaking with Darrell in one of your more recent podcasts on Project Upland, um, the something that he said in regards to his training process that um, uh, stuck stuck out in my mind is that he had an opportunity to see a lot of dogs um, before he actually was handling his own dog. Um, yeah, and I think uh, I think there's a lot to be said for that. So certainly. Um, I would, I would think that with all the experience that you've gained over the last five years, um, and, uh, the people that you've met and talked to, you know, uh, advice to first time, uh, bird dog people, setter people is, 
man, if they can, if they can observe, you know, uh, uh, you know, as many dogs as they can before they're actually responsible for bringing up that bird dog, that, that, that is so valuable. I mean, you know, I definitely want to talk to you about your favorite books and, um, uh, you know, uh, your recommended workshops and stuff like that, 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 uh, you, you've done. Um, but, uh, boy, seeing the dogs, uh, work and as many as you can, uh, really gives you a completely different perspective. Um, when it's, uh, just that, that, uh, hands-on seeing what's going on, you know? Yeah, absolutely would agree with that. And there's the, there's one thing for sure that is that I have seen a lot more dogs work now today than I had back again, back in 2014, before I had my first dog, when I was leading up to getting a bird dog, um, I still hadn't even, I hadn't hunted over a lot of dogs. I, again, I always had this thing in the back of my mind that I knew I would get a bird dog someday. But it was only like at that time, my the circle of people that I hunted with, we all started sort of like converging in that I met some people that were already into bird dogs. And then a few of the people that I hunted with regularly got dogs at that time. So it's really at that time is when I started to be able to see more dogs hunt. And it's it's just one of those things where nothing is going to replace ours in the woods or the field over a variety of dogs. I mean, you, you don't have any perspective until you put the time in and you put the experiences in and you gain that perspective over time. So, you know, and it's always growing every, every year, every season, every time I hunt with another dog or another person, I learn, I try to learn something or at least, you know, you're gaining that experience and that's just, it comes with time. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had jotted down a note, uh, Nick Larson went 15 plus years hunting grouse without a dog himself. That's, uh, <laughs> is that just, uh, yeah. based on where you were at in your life? You know, you know, uh, youth school, you know, job, or you just didn't really get immersed into the, the, the bird dog end of, uh, bird hunting. Yeah, it was it was much more I would say life circumstances, but also uh, also a little bit of just kind of the the people that I hunted with and the circle of people that uh, I got to know. I just I didn't have a lot of experiences hunting over bird dogs when I was younger. So my dad was a bird hunter. He got me started grouse hunting, but we didn't have bird dogs growing up, and um, I didn't. I never really went grouse hunting with people that had a dog until not until I was in high school. Actually, the first time I hunted over a bird dog, a good friend of mine um, in high school, whose uh, whose dad I I've now come to know as is a very avid grouse hunter. I didn't again. I didn't, it was unfamiliar to me at the time, but <laughs> I'm almost surprised he he let my friend Dave and I go hunting with their dog you know which if i think about that now that i own my own dog like <laughs> let my son take my dog out in high school and just you know all of the all of the inherent risks that there are in the grouse woods i mean it's it's yeah. it's such a a wonderful thing and it's so enjoyable but it's there's a lot of responsibility that comes with taking a dog out into the woods but um you know god bless mr beal he let us he let us take uh, I believe it was Chloe was the name of the English setter. And we went out and I shot, 
Um, shot my first woodcock over that dog, um, pointed, pointed, which a woodcock again, as a, as a dogless grouse hunter, I was mm-hmm. very unfamiliar with woodcock. I didn't, I didn't see many woodcock. I would have had no idea that the woods that I hunt were basically littered with woodcock, but I just, I saw so few of them because, you know, unless you have a dog or you are really pounding the right kind of cover, you're not going to flush woodcock if you're just walking on foot. So yeah, yeah, it was, it was that. Um, and you know, growing up, you know, in high school and stuff, so we didn't have bird dogs. So that was pretty much the extent of it. I loved grouse hunting. Again, I, I mentioned I got exposed to grouse hunting early and the way that it was taught to me by my dad, my uncle was that, and it's, you know, this is something that is absolutely possible. You, where I live and hunt, uh, you don't have to have a dog to be a successful grouse hunter. You can go out, spend time in the woods. There's plenty of trails, um, whether it's, you know, gated hunter walking trails or just ATV trails or logging trails, and you can put time on the ground and absolutely be successful as a grouse hunter without a dog. So that's what I did for years because that was the opportunity that I had available to me, and and I still loved it, and I pursued it with a passion. And, you know, I like to think that I learned a lot about rough grouse from a different perspective than, uh, you know, prior, you know, those pre-bird dog days. Now, I know way more today about cover and how to hunt birds and how to locate birds i know way more about them because of the way that i hunt today but uh those those early experiences those 15 years of hunting without a dog were were very unique and and i cherish them for different reasons yeah cool um so let's uh let's talk about uh hartley as far as um you know uh uh, when you picked them out or, uh, how you picked them out, or if you're, if you're, if your breeder, you know, uh, helped you in that process, uh, tell us about your, your Hartley acquisition. Yeah, sure. So that's kind of, a tying it to, again, me always knowing I wanted a bird. dog. It's kind of funny. I, I could say, you know, you know, I, I almost stumbled into an English setter because when I was growing up, Aside from the fact that the first dog I hunted over was an English setter, that wasn't, it wasn't like I fell in love with English setters that day. I actually, growing up in my mind, when I visualized a bird dog, I visualized the German short hair, uh, like a, you know, like a, the classic, uh, liver and roan German short hair with a blaze orange collar. Like that was the dog you saw on the hunting shows. And that's the dog that I always thought that would be my first bird dog. And uh, a, a close friend of mine, Garrett, he had short hairs, um, or one short hair at the time. And I got to hunt over his dog more than any other dog. That was, you know, some of my very early experiences hunting over his dog, Stella. And uh, Stella is a, Stella is one of the one of the best bird dogs I've probably ever hunted over, just as far as like being a, a savvy bird finder, retriever. Like, I mean, she just does it all. And so by no means did Stella sour me on, on German short hair. She only, uh, she only deepened my, my love for them. But, uh, when the mm-hmm. time came for me to look for a, for a dog, I happened to come across, it was an article in the Star Tribune about, uh, the, the breeder, Jerry Coulter of Northwoods Bird Dogs in Sandstone, Minnesota. And it was written about, um, Jerry and his kennel, uh, how he was breeding English setters and pointers for, specifically for the rough grouse and woodcock hunter. 
And it was kind of just the perfect storm for me, honestly. I was, it was, the timing was right. I was very interested in that article. It was, you know, it, it resonated with me, rough grouse and woodcock. Um, I checked out his website. I called Jerry, talked to him. I was like, Hey, I, I'd love to come there and, and meet your dogs. And, you know, I don't, it's probably a couple of weeks later, my wife and I paid him and his wife, Betsy, a visit, saw the kennel and got to know Jerry and, and just, you know, he, again, this is me total novice, like probably asking the most beginner questions that you possibly could. And Jerry walked me through it and he, I think he could tell that I was a, a passionate grouse hunter. Um, but, but I had, I had a lot to learn and Jerry helped me along the way. And I just, like I said, my search kind of ended there. You know, you hear people talk about go see a bunch of different readers and see a bunch of different dogs. And I even say that kind of stuff because I think it's probably smart. I personally, I didn't actually do that. My search ended pretty quick because I, again, I just had a rapport with Jerry and I felt like it was the right place for me to get a dog from. So, and at that point, you know, we talked about, I, I, I didn't get to see the dogs run, but we went up to the kennel and, and met a bunch of the dogs. And I talked to Jerry about kind of, you know, I was very upfront with him that, Hey, this is my first dog. And, um, I, I think he kind of had an idea of which litter to point me to. And as far as what was going on back in 2014 and that it wasn't long after that, he had a deposit and we had a litter. I was on the litter for, I was on the deposit list for a female which is not uncommon like at least for for jerry he says their their requests for females are super high and i think i don't know what about you kyle is that similar for you um yeah i mean i i get a i get a mixed bag it depends on on who and how i mean there's definitely a lot of truth to you know a daddy's little girl syndrome with uh guy hunters and their female dogs that's uh yeah that's as true (laughs) as can be but um yeah. Uh, you know, I, I get, uh, for guys that have like one or two dogs and they, and they guide or, um, <clears throat> you know, they're, they're, they're going to be doing these, uh, 10 day trips, you know, for the most part, you know, I, I don't feel there's a difference in performance between males or females, but males do usually nudge out females in stamina a little bit, um, you know, across all working breeds, um, but uh you know overall um uh i would say uh it's probably 60 40 you know in favor of females you know um i, I always yeah. tell everybody though you know as far as deposits go uh you know um <clears throat> don't worry if you got to if you end up uh, i i don't ever have trouble uh, finding you know female a home so um and i i would say that's probably true of of uh, most people with uh, breeds and you know, you look in all these Facebook groups, you know, um, anytime there were litters around, you know, nine times out of 10, you know, uh, what do you see in the comments? Any females, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. that happened, that happens a lot, but you know, nothing, nothing yeah. to knock the males. That's for sure. Yeah. And, and I only bring that up because I didn't have, I, we didn't, my wife and I decided that we wanted a female for no other reason. And that was just like, again that just that default response that a lot of people seem to have and i don't even i don't even know why but to make a long story short as people have maybe gathered by now hartley is a male so when the litter actually dropped there was one female and 
only there's one female and there was three males. So it was kind of a small letter. There was only four puppies and I was number two on the female side of things. Uh, so the first female went to actually, I, uh, I've gotten to know almost everybody that owns a pup out of this litter. Um, the female Roxy is owned by a board member of the rough grouse society, Jamie Byers. And, uh, so he got Roxy, the female and Jerry called me and said, Hey, so you were on the list for a female. And I know, um, that that's what you wanted, but, uh, if you, you know, he, he basically asked why, you know, he was trying to get after my motivations and figure out what I was thinking. And I just kind of said, you know, Jerry, I can't really tell you that I have a strong conviction that I want a female. So, um, he took that as an opportunity to say, you know, if I were, he he basically said everything that you just said, Kyle, you know, like there's not a, a huge difference one way or the other, you know, they breed for disposition and demeanor regardless of sex and everything like that. So you kind of allay some of those, maybe those fears that people have. And then, um, the one thing he told me was that if, cause he knew it would hardly would be my only dog for a period of time. And he said, mm-hmm. if he were, were going to have just one dog and he was going to hunt a lot, he would probably would want a male because if, if, uh, if you, if all else is equal, uh, a male could be, can be a little bit more durable and have a little bit more stamina. So that kind of like, just again, allayed my concerns. And I said, you know what, that sounds great. My wife and I weren't so dead set on a female that we're going to wait or anything. So that's how I wound up with Hartley, the male English setter. Cool. Very cool. Um, uh, one of the things that, uh, uh, I, um, uh, I, I very much, uh, uh, envy you on, um, and, you know, uh, bless you for making, making the time to, to gain all this knowledge through all these people you've interviewed and just your own, uh, personal journey with it all. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a really, really busy guy and I have no free time. All of my knowledge is field experience throughout my whole life. And I, I got lots of dogs under my belt and, and endless, uh, tens of thousands of hours and in the woods, uh, with the dogs. Um, and I, one of the things I, I love about podcasts is, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in my truck driving. Um, and, uh, I, I've come to really enjoy, um, uh, you know, everything that, that I, that I hear in these Upland podcasts. Um, but obviously there's, there's a lot of great resources out there, especially when it comes to, um, uh, you know, books and workshops and that kind of stuff. So, uh, I think you're a great guy to ask what, um, if you had to pick three, not to knock or lessen any of the others, what would be your, your, your top three, uh, book choices for, uh, for a first time bird dog guy, first time setter man, um, that you felt really, uh, you got a lot out of, um, uh, in terms of bringing up your dog and, or as a grouse hunter with your setter in the woods. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question, Kyle. Um, I have, I have read, you know, a good, a good number of books kind of like you. I am, I was a, I was a huge podcast fan before I ever even thought about hosting my own. I was a fan first and I love podcasts and I, if given the choice between listening to a podcast or reading a book, I'm probably going to listen to the podcast like 10 out of 10 times. Um, I yeah. do. I, I kind of go through cycles in my reading. I I really do enjoy reading, but it's uh it's got to be a habitual routine thing. And 
there are just some times in my life when I'm really reading stuff and there are other times when I'm not. Um, so with all that said, I read, like I said, I read a bunch of books before, before I took Hartley home and there were some good ones. You know, I had a, I had a lot to learn at that time because I had so, so little exposure to like everything bird dogs. I mean, it was, I picked something out of every one of those books. A lot of the stuff I read at that time, I feel like it, the stuff in there is, is, somewhat dated i mean some things some things hold true and and hold up a lot of the systems and the training techniques were kind of dated and like today like pulling things together today i i honestly will say for me and my purposes i i primarily hunt rough grouse so one of my favorite books is actually one that i've that i've read in the last year and it came out in the last year so again like you said fell not to lessen all of the great works that have already been done and I don't just say this because the author was on my podcast, but I really do think that at my in my six years of, of learning a lot about bird dogs and having a much better perspective now, I really do think that this book um, kind of encapsulates a lot of the very, very accepted training techniques and ideas that are like popular today and, and well-respected today. And that so that book is Building a Grouse Dog by Craig Doherty. And I interviewed Craig on the podcast. We talked about the book. I read the book, obviously, before that interview. Um, that is probably my favorite. And I'm I'm getting a – I will more than likely have a, another dog later this year. And I, I read that book in the last year, but I will read it again before that puppy comes home because it's – it just – it hits on – it hit on all the right things for me in, in some of the stuff that I've, again, gathered over the last few years. Um I'm looking at my bookshelf as I'm talking to you, Kyle. So I'm going over here to try to see <laughs> so, some of the other books that I that I read before. Um, there's a which is the book? Uh, yeah, Richard Walters' Gun Dog. That is a really good book, and that one get gets mentioned a lot. That's um, will come not come as a surprise to many people. That's kind of a timeless um, timeless dog training book, and I think that one holds up very well. That's was one of those foundational books for me that kind of just gave me gave me a lot of exposure to a lot of stuff that I had nothing to do with. And then there's the old, um, I don't see it here, but the Delmer Smith Delmer Smith book was a good. Do you know do you know what the name of that one was, Kyle? I do not. I'm coming to you, okay. Nick, for this I, information. <laughs> I know, I know. There was that one, um, and then there was another one uh, that actually was a. Um, it's called, I got it in my hands here. It's called the ultimate guide to bird dog training by Jerome Robinson, who I no offense to Jerome, but I don't think you hear his name a lot um, mm -hmm. mentioned recently, but I, that was a good book. It was um, very pointy dog focused. There's a cover. There's a picture of a setter on the cover. Um, actually a previous guest of the podcast, um, Jason Carter from up in new Brunswick. he, uh, reached out to me a while ago and said that he knew Jerome and was going to get us connected to have me interview him on the podcast. And I just, it's one of those ones on my list that I haven't followed up with. Um, so I need to, uh, I should do that, but that's a good book. And then to round this out, that was, that was three books that I, that I referenced there. Speaking of podcasts, I think I recommend this often on the Project Upland podcast. And when I talk to people, if 
somebody is, if they came to me and said, Hey, I'm about to get my first pointy dog. Uh, I say pointy dog because that's pretty much this person's specialty and focus. Although a lot of the information he talks about is pretty much applicable to any dog. But if somebody said, I'm about to get my first pointy dog, what are, what's a book or a podcast or a resource that you point me to? I would say every single episode of the hunting dog podcast with Justin McGrail. And <laughs> I say that because I just, I really, me personally, I just, all right. Sorry, everybody, about that interruption. Um, we had a drop call there. So uh, we were talking about uh, Justin McGrail. Uh, Nick, yes. why don't you pick up with that again? Yeah, so that was kind of – I was rounding out some of my resources there. And uh, what I, I've recommended that often to people, and, you know, I was actually – that's one of the things that um, Darrell and I were joking about on that podcast episode you referenced earlier is those – Every single episode that Justin McGrail has done on the Hunting Dog podcast with Ron Bain, which has got to be getting up to like six, seven, eight episodes. I don't know how many they've done, but they've done quite a few. And they they have always done a, a real question and answer format, which is, you know, you get lots of, you know, a lot of questions from listeners. And they're questions that I would ask or that, you know, the everyday person is asking. So it's a great uh, it's a great collection of topics and ideas that people are interested in. And then again, not every, I don't think everybody has this knack, but Justin McGrail, I personally believe has a knack of just kind of dissecting what the person is asking and drawing on his experiences and just laying things out in such a straightforward and practical manner. I've, I've learned a lot personally from listening to those episodes. And I think, uh, I think others can as well. And then if I'm, if I can throw in a couple more, just because we're we're talking about podcasts and and you and I are are obviously both fans of podcasts, Kyle. I mean, there's a couple episodes throughout the history of the Project Upland podcast. You know, I interviewed um, Jerry Coulter, where I got my dog from. That that's a that's a great episode where we definitely talk about dogs, you know, grouse dogs. I interviewed you on that podcast, Kyle. Um, another good one, very dog intensive, on the Project Upland podcast, and there's a uh, there's just a lot of a lot of great stuff out there. So whether you like to read or listen, there's there's really no shortage of of good resources available to people. Yeah, cool. You know, I I had I had written down here um, uh, before uh, we started talking. Uh, I actually wrote down Justin's name um, because uh, you had uh, referenced him in that podcast you recently did with Darrell. And yep. um, you know, it's funny because I. Actually, the <clears throat> on the Setter Talk podcast uh, um, uh, uh, cover art, the the tricolor setter there is a dog that I bred. Um, Justin actually did uh, some uh, early development work with that dog, Louie. Oh, um, uh, he and the owner Ed Moore are really good friends. Um, but Justin's trained uh, uh, a handful or more of my dogs, uh, being in Michigan, and a lot of my dogs go there. Uh, and, and he and I have had a couple conversations, and he always checks in with me um, after my dogs have left there because I just like to hear his perspective on their development and whatnot. And uh, yeah, I mean, everybody, um, giving a given a shout out to Justin, and I'm definitely going to try to get him on this show. Um, you know, everybody yeah, you that should. gets one. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that gets a dog for me. I, I, if they're if they live in uh, the Lower Peninsula, I uh, I I try to get them to go to Justin. 
um, you know, you know, you know how how important it is to have trainers that you trust and have great dog sense and you know knows how to work a dog uh, at its own pace and and read the dog real well. And uh, Justin's definitely one of those guys. Um, so yeah, we hope to have him on the show here and and uh, talk about uh, training certainly and especially setters. Um, cool, that's awesome. Yep. Um, so uh, let's uh, let's. Uh, talk a little bit about um something uh, that just came out this week uh just the other night actually uh public grouse uh uh a feature length film uh that uh project upland has put out uh you know certainly cycling through social media um is uh, some uh, great uh great reviews but uh unfortunately most of us uh that uh, uh hunt grouse across the country Statistically speaking, anyhow, uh, have not yep. gotten to see that yet. So why don't uh, why don't you uh, um, satisfy uh, all of us eager beavers that uh, uh, want to see this film just a little bit without giving it all away? I guess. <laughs> yeah, happy to try to do that. I guess if I do my job well here, I will tease people just enough to get them even more excited about it. Um, <laughs> appreciate you uh, providing me the opportunity to talk about uh, some of the work that we do at Project Upland, Kyle. Public Grouse, as you mentioned, is a one-hour feature-length film. And for anybody that's familiar with the work that we typically do at Project Upland, uh, films are a big component of what we do, along with a bunch of other stuff. But our, we typically specialize in short films. We've always done sort of the you know five to ten minute short film, and that's been our bread and butter for a long time. So the public grouse feature length film, one hour film was a, a much bigger undertaking than some of our, some of our typical projects. And it's a project that we, it was born in a conversation between uh, one of our uh, guys on the project Upland team, Chet Hervey, kind of a, one of the business partners and does a lot of the development work and, and, uh, you know, comes up with a lot of the projects that we end up working on. And he had a conversation with Lantani of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and they kind of had a, you know, sort of a brainstorming session. And, and BHA was interested in doing something in the Upland space, and they wanted to, they wanted to work with us. And we, of course, uh, the flip side of that, were very excited to work with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers as you know, the fastest growing conservation organization in pretty much the country and a lot of their public lands advocacy uh, resonates with sort of our key demographic, which is oftentimes public land wild bird hunter. So it was kind of a no brainer. And the idea came from uh, where they normally come from, creative director, AJ DeRosa. He's, he's full of ideas. And in, in fact, uh, he's, you know, if you don't put a leash on him, he'll, He'll just come up with idea after idea after idea. And <laughs> we're all running around in a million different directions. AJ has, uh, he's got no shortage of brilliant ideas. That's for sure. But this one, uh, we all, uh, we all knew that this was one where we need to get together, put our heads together, and pull this one off. So I, I played a very small role, um, in the development of the film. I knew about its production, um, you know, well in advance of the launch this week, but to make a long story short, the, the film is done and it kicked off earlier this week. I was at the event in Minneapolis. We had just shy of 200 people there, which I was really proud 
um, that Minnesota brought out that many uh, passionate bird hunters to come and see this film the first time we ever did something like that. So, and obviously when people come out to see the film, they're supporting um, backcountry hunters and anglers, as well as um, whether it's directly or indirectly, the Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society, and Pheasants Forever, because both of those organizations are obviously key to uh, public hunting opportunities for a lot of different species of upland game birds, but they're also represented in the film in one way or another. So it's um, it's a really cool collaboration, honestly, between some excellent, excellent nonprofit groups in the upland bird space. And then, of course, you know, we got the opportunity to highlight the work that those organizations do. So obviously we take a ton of pride in that, but it's uh, it's seven different segments. It's seven, not seven different species of grouse, but seven, seven different grouse hunts with a bunch of different people um, involved in each different segment and really telling the story about public lands grouse hunting across North America. That's what the film set out to do. And it's set out to tell unique stories from unique people um, knowing that everybody has their own public grouse hunting stories. And that's what we wanted to share, highlight, focus on and, uh, and promote for the, for these, for these great organizations, specifically backcountry hunters and anglers. And I think we've done that. Um, you know, it, after the first showing on Wednesday night, I, I called, I was on the phone with AJ the next day and we're already talking about, you know, the next one, how can we make the next one bigger and better? You know, we, every, everything that we do is kind of a benchmark and we're always looking to set the bar higher, but so far the feedback on the film has been, has been really good. And obviously we're happy to hear that. And we can't wait for a bunch of other people to see it. So just to kind of give people an idea, there's, um, there are 20 events, a handful of them are done already, but the, the rest of the remaining 20 events, uh, are taking place throughout the month of February. And that was, uh, um, that was a, the initial tour, I've been told, I can't confirm this 100%, but I've been told that there's been enough interest in um, additional backcountry hunters and anglers chapters and just upland bird hunters that want to see the film have been speaking up. And uh, BHA is considering doing like sort of an encore tour. So adding um, once this first leg of the tour is over, they're going to get together and figure out what um, secondary locations might make sense to have another event. Um, which I'm actually interested in one because we didn't do one in my hometown of Duluth. And I, uh, if given the opportunity to host a secondary event, I may very well just take that by the reins and, and uh, have one here in Duluth. So I'm excited about that. But if you didn't get to see it the first time around, there could be a chance to see it again. And if you know or are connected with your local BHA chapter and they didn't do an event already, hit them up, send them a message, send them an email, tell them you want to see public grouse in your neck of the woods. And there's still time to make that happen. And then for everybody else that just for scheduling or location or whatever reason, anybody else that doesn't get to see it, there will be an option to um, stream it or download it or watch it online some way, somehow. Um, at some point, but we're, uh, the details are still being worked out on exactly what service that'll be and what opportunity people will have to watch it. Um, until it, we'll figure that out after the, uh, the, the actual physical screenings of the film. But, um, just for, for a lot of people I've asked for anybody curious, there will be a way to watch it digitally at some point. Cool. Very cool. Well, uh, with, uh, it being 
public grouse, please tell me, for the sake of setter talk, there's got to be setters in it, right, Nick? You can bet there are some there are some setters in it, Kyle. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's uh, there's a good variety of dogs actually in the film, which is cool. Um, there are uh, there's a handful of different breeds from uh, short hairs to setters to um, Deutsch Drahthars. Um, I believe there's I think there are maybe two Munsterlanders in the film. Yeah, there's a bunch of different breeds. There are setters. Uh, my dog Hartley is featured in the North Dakota segment along with a, another setter from a friend of mine, Ted Summer. Uh, there's a Paint River Llewellyn in the film, actually, Kyle, in the uh, in the the segment on Minnesota. Uh, so those are those are two that come to mind for sure. Cool, very cool. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Well, Nick, not that people don't know where to find you, <laughs> but uh, if uh, they want to find you, why don't you tell us uh, how uh, how they can do so? Sure. So uh, I typically will always point people towards the Project Upland podcast first, as that's the the bulk of what I what I do, and and uh, people can have an opportunity to listen to the podcast. And um, we just put out episode number ninety, so we're uh, we got ninety episodes of the Project Upland podcast that cover you know it's kind of everything under the sun as far as Upland is concerned. I have that. Um, I have that freedom within Project Upland to kind of cover dogs, shotguns, birds, anything I want to, which suits me very well. Because as I mentioned earlier, Kyle, I have um, many, many interests, and and when I get interested in something, I like to explore that. So I'm uh, I'm very fortunate in that I have kind of a wide variety of topics that I get to cover on the Project Upland podcast, and that can be found essentially anywhere podcasts are available. iTunes, Spotify are the big ones, but Stitcher and all that other stuff. Um, our work. In general, it can be found at projectupland.com, including all the articles, some that uh, I've written. And obviously, it's a it's a collective of people that put together all the work at Project Tuplin. So that can be all be found at projectupland.com. And then um, I am on Instagram uh, at nilarson13. I, I usually just post pictures of basically uh, birds, dogs, and shotguns on on that account. So people can people can follow me there too. Cool, cool. Very awesome. Well, Nick, um, really thankful that you were able to join us on the show today. Uh, maybe in the future, uh, we'll do another show and we'll chat about uh, uh, what we could uh, what we could talk about and share with the listeners. Um, so again, thank you, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, I I'm honored to uh, to be a guest on your podcast, Kyle. And I, I mentioned this to you as and when you told me about the idea for your show. Uh, really excited to see another uh another podcast in in a space that i'm very interested in you know i think people are starting to see all these podcasts popping up and and i think that's a good thing it's uh it's the more the better everybody has their own unique perspective and again for a format that has given so much back to me as far as information and knowledge and education i'm just I'm uh, I'm excited to see you going after this, and it's obviously a topic I'm very interested in. So, wish you the best of luck with your podcast. I'll be following along, and thank you so much for for asking me to be a part of it, Kyle. Yeah, you bet. Thanks a lot. Uh, well, everyone, this is Setter Talk. I'm your host, Kyle Warren. Our guest today is Nick Larson. And until next time, give your setter a scratch on the head for me, and have a great day. <laughs>